You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. We're going to be turning back to the book of Mark. So right now you can turn back to to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Uh, As a church, we love uh, bold preaching, expository, applicational preaching. And we do that through walking verse by verse through the Bible. And as a church, since last September, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark. We've been walking in the footsteps of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at it and preaching it and applying it to our lives. We want to lean into it and to apply it directly and specifically to our lives together as the body of Christ. And so I'm excited to get back into this. Uh, It's been an awesome week jumping back in and getting myself familiar again with the book of Mark. And so for a bit of refresher for you, let's do some review. We remember that the the gospel of Mark could in, in many ways be considered the gospel of Peter. Remember that even though Mark wrote this gospel. He was not a direct disciple of Jesus, but he was a disciple of Peter. And so this intimate, punchy, eyewitness record record of Christ's life and his ministry comes from uh, Mark recording what Peter was teaching, Peter's recollections of, of his life with Jesus as he walked in his footsteps as his disciple. Now, Mark's gospel began with John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was the last and the greatest of the prophets, and he was baptizing and teaching repentance in the wilderness, and many people were coming to him to get baptized. He was the one who was, as Isaiah said, was making straight the way of the Lord, right? And as he sees Jesus coming to him, he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And then he baptizes Jesus Christ, and the skies tear open, and the Holy Spirit comes down in power and end peace and rests upon Jesus' face. And God the Father from heaven proclaims, You are my Son, my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so we've seen Jesus, yes, he's 100% God, but he's 100% man as well. And then from there, Jesus begins his ministry proclaiming the gospel of God, Mark 1.15, saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the gospel. He begins to gather his disciples. Remember, these ordinary, uneducated men uh, who were destined to do extraordinary things. First, he calls four Galilean fishermen, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, and soon after, the Thunder brothers, James and John Zebedee. And then he calls Levi, this despised tax collector. And then consecutively, he calls the rest, including Judas Iscariot. And as Jesus led and taught the disciples throughout the towns of Galilee, and then back and forth on the Sea of Galilee, he worked tirelessly to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. He went from town to town. He taught with divine authority, not as the scribes. He healed many of diseases, demons, and death, all foreshadowing the eternal realities of salvation. And he miraculously calmed terrifying storms by the word of his power. He walked upon the sea. He fed thousands with little to no food. 
And it was undeniable that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he is the greatest shepherd. And massive crowds followed him. Remember, so much that they couldn't even eat. And yet there was always the religious elite as well. And they were rejecting him. They were fiercely opposing him with their religiosity and their legalism. And then just previous to our text today, remember that his disciples were charged with defilement because they weren't washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. And he argues with the Pharisees and the scribes about their love for tradition over the word of God. And he calls them out as hypocrites. And then he turns to the crowds and he teaches them that true defilement doesn't come from without. True defilement comes from within. Mark chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. The Pharisees are so worried about the outside while the source of the problem is right here. And this sets the scene for what Jesus does next, where we are today. He does something unexpected. Brothers and sisters, we're going to see Jesus living out what he just preached. As he goes on an unexpected journey, to an unlikely people, and he undeniably provides abundant grace to the unworthy. As we look at that, we're going to be starting in Mark chapter 7, verses 24, and on down to 30. And from there, from Capernaum, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is opened before us. We thank you that uh, as we think about it, all the blood that was spilt so we can have your word open and bare before us in our language as you speak to us through what you have written by the Holy Spirit through men. Lord, it is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is always true. And Lord, we turn to you through your word. Lord, would you speak to us through your word today? And may your spirit apply it deeply into our hearts. As we look at this this recollection, this story about uh, you and the Syrophoenician woman. Lord, help us to apply it to our hearts, to know what it means so that we can be better worshipers of you. And we pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. So all of Christ's ministry up to this point was primarily to Jewish people in Jewish territory. But now we see Jesus in what we just read in this text going outside the boundaries. We see here in this text today, we're going to see three grace-fueled truths that will ultimately turn the world upside down. And the first we see is found in verse 24. As Jesus goes to an unexpected place, we see that the gospel loves the world, not boundaries. Verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So as we just witnessed, Jesus just finished blasting the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy. He was, he was confronting them over their man-made rules about defilement. He immediately drives his point home by going to a defiled country, by actually heading there himself. And he goes to the most unclean, hated, pagan people, pagan region, according to the Jewish people. The text says he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I've got a map up here. Right. So you can see Capernaum is where he left, and the orange line shows him going up to Tyre and Sidon. That's northwest out of Capernaum. It's a region along the, the edge of the Mediterranean. Today, that would be southern Lebanon. But back then, this region had a long-standing antagonistic relationship with Israel. The region of Tyre and Sidon used to be called Phoenicia which if you can remember uh, to the Old Testament, you'll remember a lady by the name of Jezebel, daughter of the king of Phoenicia. And you will rem remember that she married King Ahab, which brought much paganism and Baal worship to the Jewish people, and it almost destroyed the northern kingdom back in the 8th century. These weren't fond memories that, that Israel had towards this, this region and these people. Tyre and Sidon was also a place that was extremely wealthy. Extremely wealthy along the coast of the Mediterranean. The prophet Zechariah said back in Zechariah 9.3 that Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. They were extremely rich. And what goes with, with wealth is often power. The prophet Ezekiel said that Tyre, in Ezekiel 26, 17, Tyre was a city renowned who was mighty on the sea. She and her inhabitants imposed their terror on all her inhabitants. And they were also fierce enemies of Israel. In the second century BC, during the, the Maccabean revolt, Tyre and Sidon actually joined forces with the Seleucids fighting against the Jews. And so you can see there's a long history of them being enemies and being against Israel. Actually, the, the Jewish historian Josephus said that they were notoriously our bitterest enemies. And so the Jewish people regarded them as such. They were regarded as enemies. And they would avoid going into that region at all costs. And so the fact that Jesus heads there goes against everything that they would believe in, especially as he claimed to be the Messiah. 
Remember, the Jews believed that the Messiah would come to defeat their enemies, not go to their enemies. But we see Jesus here going to them willingly and going there intentionally. The text says here that he entered a house there and didn't want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. So as the Pharisees back in Jewish territory were bent on destroying Jesus, opposing him, he would often have to escape them. And so as he went to this enemy territory, he knew that they wouldn't come after him there. But still we see here that the fame of his name has reached beyond the borders, beyond Israel. And these pagan people of Tyre and Sidon soon found him. And so what we see here is that the good news of Jesus has reached the defiled. They've been hearing about him. And now the good news of Jesus is among them, and they seek him out. And so what we're seeing here in this first verse, as Jesus goes to this unexpected place, we see by his example that the gospel loves the world, not boundaries. We have to remember also that Jesus was not alone. Remember, he always had his disciples in tow, and he was, he was apprenticing them, right, for the mission they're going to have. And this was yet another teaching opportunity. Now, when we think about it, in their Jewish culture, they would have been struggling with this idea as well. They wouldn't have wanted to be going up to Tyre and Sidon. Why would our Messiah go to our enemies? It would have been a big struggle for them. In fact, we know that it was a struggle for them even as the first century began. In Acts 10, Peter, remember, he received uh, this special vision from the Lord to uniquely teach him that the gospel is not just for Jews uh, but for Gentiles. There was a blanket that came down with, with all this food and it's, it was meant to teach him that, that, that it's, it's clean now. Don't call what's unclean or don't call what's clean unclean. Acts 10, 28, he said to Peter and Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. But yet, even with that special revelation that Peter received from God, he had to grow inside of that understanding and that acceptance. In fact, we know that Paul later had to confront Peter to his face because Peter was showing partiality to ethnic Jews over Gentiles. And so just by his example, we're seeing that it was, it was a struggle for them to understand this mystery of the Gentiles uh, being brought into the promise. But eventually the church got it, and they understood as they began going to the ends of the earth. The gospel loves to go beyond boundaries. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The gospel loves the world, not boundaries. And so as we consider this first point, for ourselves, when you think of your life as being the life of a Christ follower, which means you're a disciple maker, which means you're a gospel goer, are there any places 
on this planet that you just don't want to go to? Are there people in and around your life throughout your day that you would rather avoid, you'd rather not engage? Let's be honest with each other. Are there particular types of people in this world that you're not so attracted to? In fact, maybe you're repelled by, and maybe you're afraid of them. Would you walk across the street to talk to your Muslim neighbor? Would you engage your Buddhist coworker? How about your atheist boss? How about that, that strung out guy on the street? How about those of the LGBTQ community, transgender community? Are you compelled to go to them? Those that we would consider in our hearts as unclean and defiled. There's a ministry in, in Louisville, Kentucky. It's called Scarlet Hope. It started in a church in, in Louisville where the ladies of the church were, were burdened for other women who were working in the sex trade. And so they decided to go to them. They decided to go to uh, clubs uh, where these women worked and they, they began to make meals for them. And they began to, to minister to them. It was, it was a little rocky at first. First, they were not accepted. The managers didn't want them in there. But through going to them and showing the love of Jesus and sharing the love of Christ, they were now welcomed in. And they began ministering to these women to the point now that hundreds of women have come out of these places. Hundreds of these women have now come to salvation in Christ, all because these faithful women believed that the gospel has no boundaries. They went to them. This is what we see Jesus doing here. He goes to the, under, he goes to the defiled. He goes to the hated. He goes to the despised. And we see that later in the church with the apostles as they spread the gospel beyond the borders of Israel to the ends of the earth. And this is still happening today. It's still going. But what are we doing? I think as a church, we can start to be creative about this. Maybe there's an unlikely group of people in this city that we can start to focus on. Maybe there's a prison somewhere where we can begin to minister. All kinds of ideas, but the, the fact is, is that we need to go to them. We see our Savior doing that. Are there undesirable places or people that we can specifically go to in our city, in our province, in our country, or around the world? Let's be, begin to be praying about that as a church. So as Jesus goes to this unexpected place, next we see here that he engages with an unlikely person. And through this encounter, we see that the gospel seeks desperation, not status. The gospel seeks desperation, not status, verse 25 to 26. But immediately, Mark's favorite word, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, 
a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This pagan lady asks for Jesus to heal her daughter. And we see later that he's going to respond with, with some kind of a riddle, some kind of a parable, uh, trying to figure out what all that means. We're going to look at that here. But first, what we're going to see is that the news of Jesus' arrival cannot be contained. Just as before in the Jewish territory, Mark says immediately, again, that's his word of, of urgency, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. She hears that he has arrived in the area and she comes to Jesus and what does she do? She falls down at his feet. This word here for falling down at his feet is prosopesin. It literally means to bow down, prostrate in homage and humility to a king. Now, this isn't anything new to Jesus. If you remember chapter 5, remember the, the demoniac man of the Gennesarenes, the man who's cutting himself and living among the tombs, right? He, he comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet. We also seen that with Jairus. He did the same thing. Remember, he wanted his daughter to be healed. And he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. So it's really interesting to look at the contrast between Jairus and this woman. It's, it's really significant. If you remember, Jairus was a ruler. He was a manager of the synagogue in Capernaum. Meaning that he was, he was a Hebrew man of prominence. He was a man of respect. But this woman has no prominence. She has zero respect but what she has is desperation. Jesus meets her in this region of, of Tyre and Sidon. And not only does that lower her in the eyes of the Jews, but she's also a woman. Right? She, in, in that era, she had nothing going for her and everything going against her. She was, she was a woman. And in that time, in, in Jewish culture and the culture at large, women were seen as far inferior to men. And then on top of that, she was a Syrophoenician, meaning that she was a descendant of the ancient enemies of Israel, all the way back to the Canaanites. So she would have been regarded as the lowliest of the low. In the eyes of the Jews, she would have been a hated person, she would have had zero status whatsoever. One commentator says that, that even Matthew, the tax collector, would have rolled his eyes at her. But she comes to Jesus. She bows down to Jesus. In desperation, this woman pushes beyond the cultural norms to beg Jesus to cast this demon out of her daughter. Now, many times before, Jesus was casting demons out of people. This was him showing his compassion towards those who are suffering. And it was a, a regular part of his ministry in Galilee. But the fact that this woman was a Gentile from enemy background in enemy territory throws a major curveball into this situation. She wasn't a Hebrew of the promise of Abraham. She wasn't one of the children of God. She was an outsider. 
But yet it says she begged him. The North American Standard Bible says she kept asking him. She kept asking Jesus, despite zero status, to cast the demon out of her daughter. Brothers and sisters, she, she brought nothing to the table but desperation. She was at her wit's end. Her little, precious daughter was suffering under torment. For those parents out there, just, just think about how much you stress and worry over a little one having just a cold or a stomach flu. This little child was being tormented by a demon. She would have been experiencing extreme, violent, physical convulsions, maybe even just despondency, like looking in her eyes, she wasn't even there. Whatever the case, what we're seeing is the idolatry of this evil people have so infected this little girl that she was suffering immensely. And the only hope was that the demon would leave her. Likely they would, have, they would have performed all kinds of pagan rituals on her, but they would have all failed to help her daughter. And all that this lady was left with was extreme desperation. And so she comes to the end of herself with no status, nothing. No worthiness, nothing. And she comes desperately to the only one who can help. And she begs and she begs begs him to help her. The gospel loves desperation, not status. So if you were to examine your life right now, what level of desperation do you think that you have for Jesus Christ? On a scale of 1 to 10, as a, as a Christian, how desperate are you to have Jesus doing what he can only do every day in your life? Maybe number one on that scale was, I don't need him at all. I'll take care of myself. Number five on that scale might be like, okay, I, I need Jesus when life gets hard. But when things are going really good, I'm just going to take care of myself. Or number 10, a level 10, like the old hymn would say, Lord, I need thee every hour. In joy or pain, come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Is that your level of desperation for the Lord today? In Matthew's gospel, he says, This lady cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. How much do we need the Lord every day? How much do we need him every hour, every minute, every second? Are we pleading with him like this pagan woman? A woman of no promise, of no status. Are we pleading with him? How about when it comes to your family? How about when it comes to your friends? Are you pleading with the Lord on their behalf? Or do you think that they're okay on their own? Do you think that maybe, maybe you're entitled to his care, but maybe they're not? Maybe, maybe you think God owes you something. 
Brothers and sisters, the gospel seeks desperation, not status. For the unbeliever, for the, for the lost, for the proud, for the rebel, it's not until you come to the end of yourself that you will truly discover your need for salvation in Jesus Christ. Maybe you wonder why a friend hasn't come or, or a sibling hasn't come to Christ yet. God is sovereign, and in his working, he wants them to come to the lowest part of themselves, to realize that they are spiritually improvised, that they have nothing. The gospel isn't, we just add Jesus to our already good life. He wants us, no, to come to the end of ourselves and realize that we bring nothing to the table. Religious person, it's not until you stop trying to reach God in heaven on your own strength that you discover that you have zero strength. It's not until you discover that the temptations and the trappings of this world always overpromise and underdeliver. It's only then that you're truly going to see your need for Jesus. Jesus died for the desperate. He died for those who truly need him. We all need him. But do we truly know how much that we need him? If you remember back in Char- or Mark chapter 2, the, the Pharisees questioned Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And how did he respond to them? Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Brothers and sisters, we have no status on our own. We bring nothing to the table. We have no righteousness of our own. Like this woman, we are all born enemies of God, and we are all spiritually bankrupt. But the good news is that God knows that, and he wants you to know that. And he wants you to be at that place that you truly understand that. That's why he sent Jesus, Romans 5, 6 to 10. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, The Lord wants us to know that that we are not strong, we are weak. That we are not righteous, we are sinners. That we are not born on his team, that we are born enemies. And that's why Jesus had to come. We're not strong, we're not righteous, and we have no entitlement. We have zero status before God. But God is good and gracious. So, men and women here this morning, we, we are not strong. As you go this week, you've got to remind yourself, I am not strong. I have no spiritual strength on my own. I am weak. And I need to embrace my weakness and cling to his strength. That's where the Lord wants us to be. Young people, teenagers, you're not indestructible. God doesn't owe you anything. He wants you to know that this world 
will not satisfy you. It'll always lie to you, and it'll always let you down. Apart from him, you are without hope. God wants you to discover that. He wants you to discover the end of yourself, how lost, how helpless, how desperate you are for him. Turn away from the world. Turn to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in him. Remember his death on a cross for you that while you were still sinners, he died for you. The gospel seeks desperation, not status. Even as Christians, as we continue to walk as Christians, we are always desperate for the Lord. We have zero strength, but the strength of the Spirit. The gospel is for Christians as well. And so we see here in this unlikely person, this woman has nothing, and yet she comes and begs the Lord to heal her daughter. How does Jesus respond? Verse 27. He said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. We see an undeniable provision here. And we see that the gospel responds to faith, not privilege. Initially, as we look at this, it may seem really strange what Jesus is saying here as as this lady is pleading for mercy. Let's look at it closely. You notice that almost never does Jesus answer a a question directly. He almost always answers a question with a parable. And we see that here. Remember, uh, in, in Mark, we already learned that uh, he, he uses parables so that those who have ears can hear, right? He's revealing his truth to some, but he's concealing it from others. And we see the same thing going on here as well. He uses an analogy of the feeding of children versus the feeding of dogs. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What he's saying is teaching her about the priority of the preaching of the gospel. That the preaching of the gospel was for the children of God first, that is, Israel. They are the children of the promise of Abraham, and they are the ones to which the Messiah is to come, and he has come in Jesus Christ. And so they need to be fed first. He says that it's not right for him to take what's meant for them and give it to dogs, give it to Gentiles. Did you hear that? Jesus just compares this woman and the Gentiles to dogs. This doesn't seem like the answer uh, my Jesus would give to somebody. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, if you study biblical history, you know that in ancient days, dogs were considered extremely unclean. They ran the streets like wolves. They ate garbage. They would even eat dead corpses. They'd be wreaking havoc all over, and they'd be stealing food and terrorizing people. 
in Scripture would often refer to Gentiles as these types of dogs. In, in, in Jewish uh, Judaism, rabbis would often refer to the Gentiles as dogs, as the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. And so in first reading, we would think that that's what Jesus is saying here. But when you look at the Greek text closely, we see that the, the word that Jesus is using here for dog is not the normal word that is used for the dogs on the street. Street dogs in the Greek language was the word kion. But the word Jesus uses here for dog is kinerion. This is a diminutive version of that word, and it means little dog. Little dog. And they would define it as, as the small, tame kind of dog that would live in a house with a family and with children. A tame dog. Who here has a household dog? Let's see, show of hands. Not that many, okay. Well, I got a picture of our dog here up on the screen. This is Bexley, of course. He is our little precious dog. We, we love him. He lives in our home. He's so excited when we come home. He loves to play and he loves to cuddle. He loves to, to, to try to sleep in my bed, even though I'm not a big fan of that. We love our dogs. For those who have pets, we love our, our animals, our, our little animals we have in our home. Now, I searched for my phone for pictures of, of Bexley, and I have 276 photos of him. So it's crazy how much we love these little animals, these little dogs. And Jesus is using this type of dog to, to speak of this Woman, it's not a wild street dog, but a small, beloved, household, tame dog. Now, sorry, cat lovers. Jesus loves dogs. <laughs> but seriously, what's, what's going on here? He's showing, yes, that there is a priority to the people of Israel, right? To the Jew first and then to the Greek. But they weren't more important. Jesus had his eyes set on the, on, the, on the rest of the world, right? In his great commission, make disciples of the whole world. But what he's showing her is that according to the Abrahamic promise, the Jews would be a blessing to the world. They were the ones who, who had the scriptures. They were the ones to whom the, the Messiah was coming. They were the ones to take the good news to the whole world, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. This is not favoritism, but it's the plan of how Jesus rolls out the gospel to the world. And so in saying that it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, it's just revealing that the mission has begun. But it starts with the children first. And it will come to the Gentiles after. Jesus, at this point, still has to go to the cross. He still has to die. He still has to rise from the grave. And then his plan is to send out his disciples, who were all Jews, to the children, 
that are in the world. Jesus, again, uses parables to reveal truth to some and conceal it to others. Just even think about his disciples, how often they didn't understand his parables. But what's so interesting here is that this woman gets it. She is not a Jew. She has no status, yet she gets this parable right away. And she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see, the Lord is testing her here. He's testing her faith. She didn't respond offended that Jesus just called her a dog. No, she responds in faith. She acknowledged her place as a Gentile. She recognizes her own unworthiness, that she's not a Jew, that she lays no claim to the lineage of the Jews and the bloodlines. Yet she says, yes, Lord. She understands all of this. And she says, even the little beloved household dogs under the table, eat the children's crumbs. And what she's saying to Jesus is the crumbs are sufficient. The crumbs are enough. I'll take the leftovers. It's enough for me. She was hungry for whatever the Lord had for her. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. She's hungry. She believes. This is faith. Zero entitlement. Zero lineage. Zero privilege. But believing that you come with nothing and you're clinging to everything that Jesus is. This is faith. And Jesus rewards her for her faith. And he said to her, For this statement... You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Faith. Real faith holds on to nothing else but Christ alone. Jesus rewarded her faith with an undeniable provision. He mercifully heals her daughter. With all of his authority and all of his power as God on earth, he instantly and sovereignly orchestrates the deliverance of this demon that is in a whole different location. Because why? Because of faith. Matthew's gospel says of this woman, Jesus says to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. The gospel responds to faith, not privilege. God's plan was, first, to shower his grace upon his covenant people. But the plan has never been for that to just stay amongst those people. The plan has always been to bless the nations of the world as the grace of God would overflow God's people to the world. And so as you look around this room, the fact that you sit here saved is evidence of this truth. It wasn't because of anything that we had. We had claimed to nothing. We are Gentiles. 
but it's by faith, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. We're not saved because God owes us anything. We're not saved because we're brought up in a church. We don't inherit salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. Because why? Because Jesus loves the world. He loves the world, not boundaries. He came for the worst of enemies. We're saved because of grace. And Jesus seeks desperation, not status. Because we bring nothing to the table but a sinful heart and a desperate need to be forgiven of our trespasses against God. We are saved because of grace, through faith. The gospel responds to faith, not privilege. Faith not in what we can do, or anything that we can bring, or anything that we can inherit. No, faith alone in the only one who can save. Faith in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, not just the Jews, but the world, that he sent his only son, that whoever, not just the Jews, but everyone, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus Christ should not perish, but have eternal life. The great reformer Martin Luther says of this Syrophoenician woman, she took Christ at his words. He then treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So as Jesus went to this unexpected place and he encounters an unlikely person and he undeniably provides such grace and healing, we see three things. The gospel loves the world, not boundaries. The gospel seeks desperation, not status. And the gospel responds to faith, not privilege. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that your word and that the testimony of the life of Christ is, is so full. There's so much there to know and to understand. And it leads us to believe that he is the son of God. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of, of Mark and, and, and this little story here of the Syrophoenician woman and, and the faith that she had, even as a pagan, and how she understood exactly what Jesus was saying and how in that she revealed such faith. And Jesus told her she had such faith and rewarded her. Lord, we thank you that by your grace you give us faith. We thank you, Lord, that as this church sits together in this room and we worship your name, it is a testimony that the gospel goes beyond boundaries. And so as we reflect on that as Christians here today, let us not contain the gospel to ourselves. Let us not put boundaries 
up against those who we would prefer not to go to. Give us the boldness to go. Give us the bravery. Give us the humility to go to those that, that, that are unlikely. And Lord, would you save them through uh, our going. Lord, we pray that you would build us up as a church, that you would grow us up in maturity. Lord, we want less of ourselves and, and more of you as we walk forward in these days. And Lord, we pray that, that we would understand that it's not by striving in our own strength. It's leaning on your strength. It's being desperate for you every day. Desperate as revealed in the way that we pray. Desperate revealed in the way that we live. Desperate in how we approach your word and how we approach your church and how we approach the world. Lord, we have zero privilege of our own. We have no claims you don't owe us anything, but by your abundant grace, you loved us and you sent your son and you also love others and you're sending us to them. Help us to follow your call towards that. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.